It is exciting to have the chance to share with uh, the Avalon family this morning. Um, I'm especially excited this time because this is my third opportunity to do so, and that's good news because supposedly third time's a charm. So we'll see. Uh, And it was funny because I had a whole bunch of people come up to me at one point or another and say that they were praying for me, and it was really encouraging. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. I'm, I'm surprised that so many people are thinking of lifting this up in prayer. But after a while, I got a little nervous because everybody kept saying, no, I'm really praying for you. I'm really, and I was like, well, what do you think is going to happen up here? If he's, <laughs> I wonder if I should be concerned, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll know it by the end of this whether or not uh, your prayers worked or not. So, All right. So I've got one opportunity about every year and a half to share something with you. I've got about 40 minutes to do so. And so I figured we don't want to get too aggressive. We don't want to go crazy. We don't want to open a can of worms that, you know, would require multiple weeks to unpack. So we're going to deal with a pretty straightforward question. Uh, We're just going to answer a simple question. What is faith? Easy, right? We've got 40 minutes. That's more than plenty of time, I would think. So go ahead and open your Bibles. Um, We're going to be looking at John 10 specifically. And I want to focus on a couple of key responses of people to Jesus in that chapter. And we're actually going to read through the whole chapter because I really think it's important to set the stage and get some context for what's going on there. So while you're getting there, just some context. Uh, Chapter 5 through 11 is basically the part of John that he uses to make the most outrageous claims about Jesus' works and words. And so if you start from 5 and go through 11, you'll see some really extraordinary things that happens during uh, Christ's life that are recorded. So in chapter 5, we've got the healing of the the lame man. In chapter 6, we've got the feeding of the 5,000 and Christ walking on water. And then in chapter 9, we've got the healing of the blind man. All right, so... You know, when we're sitting in church and we're thinking about hearing about these stories, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, the lame man, the, uh, the lame man, the lame man that got healed and the blind man that got healed and the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water, you know, normal stuff, right? But <laughs> if we can kind of step back for a second and realize, wait, wait, no, no, these are not normal things, right? These are extraordinary, completely mind-boggling things that we're hearing about. And if we could kind of with fresh eyes see these things being told again for the first time, I think it would be, uh, it would hit us in a different way. So kind of trying to set the stage for some of that stuff. And so when we pick this up, we're in chapter 10. So again, uh, chapter 9 was uh, the healing of the blind man. And the pattern of 5 through 11 is miraculous event, and then kind of dialogue between Jesus and the people who witnessed that event about the implications. And that's kind of how things flow throughout chapter 5 through 11. And so we're in the same pattern now. Um, In chapter 9, we've got the healing of the blind man. And then chapter 10, Jesus takes this opportunity and says, okay, you've seen something extraordinary. There are implications. Let's discuss them, right? And so uh, I'm just going to read through all of chapter 10 at this point, and uh, feel free to keep up if you so desire. So, verse 1. And again, this is Christ speaking to the people who had just seen him heal uh, someone who had been blind from birth. Most assuredly, I say to you, these are Christ's words, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So already we've got kind of this weird situation where Christ has healed a man who was blind and then starts talking about sheep. And so I could imagine if I were in that situation, I would, res- I would respond exactly the way the people did. Uh, verse 6, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that makes sense. I can understand that. All right, verse 7. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, and uh, sorry, backing up again, this is where it feels like, okay, I'm making a point, but obviously you're not getting it. Let me go into a little bit more detail here. Chapter or verse 7. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. But a hireling, he who's not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and they will be one flock with one shepherd. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. What? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Okay, now he's really making some bold claims. You know, specifically he's saying there's a a pasture that you can get access to, but it's only going to be through me. Anyone else who has said that they could do this is wrong. On top of that, I am going to give my life and then just take it back. And again, these claims are extraordinary. And so again, we see the response of the people who are listening completely reasonably. And they say, uh, verse 19, Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Completely reasonably, right? Verse 21, Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so now we've got this, the, the first part of this situation in which these people have seen what happened it's extraordinary. They hear this claim. It's extraordinary. And they're starting to put those two things together and say, well, this is crazy what he's saying. But so was that. Did you see that? All right. Verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And when I first read this, I was thinking, oh, they're excited. You know, they're like, I mean, we've seen what you've done. There's something different going on here. Are, are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for this whole time? And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. You know, they're getting it. But it this is exciting. But if you keep reading, you find out this is not an encouragement to reveal yourself because we want to follow you and be excited. This is basically daring him to claim that he is the son of God. Because as soon as he does... They don't respond with excitement, right? Okay. So verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. All right? But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. (laughs) Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of these do you stone me? Verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I say you are gods? If he called them gods, speaking of God, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I'm the son of God. And this is our focus right here. Verse 37, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do... Though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Verse 39, therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Okay, thank you for walking through that with me. That's the context that we are really focusing on uh, this morning. So uh, this word faith, 
maybe causes more disruption in our dialogue within the church and between the church and the world, maybe more than most other words that I'm aware of, which is one of the reasons why I feel like it's so crucial for us to take some time to get a good, solid understanding of what we would say the Bible's definition of this word faith is, right? And, you know, just to make a point of how important a single word can be, um, after the Allies in World War II had victory in Europe, they basically issued an opportunity, maybe you would say, to Japan for them to uh, surrender unconditionally because the Allies knew if they had to execute a land war in Japan, it was going to be brutal and there were going to be casualties on both sides that potentially had been uncountable. And so they issued this opportunity at the Postum Conference uh, to a Kentaro Suzuki, and Japan did not respond for a long time. And when they did respond, they included in their response one word, and that word was mokusatsu, if I'm saying that right. I tried to give it a little bit of a Japanese accent, but who knows. So this word, when used in Japanese, has uh, a very specific intent, which is supposedly to mean um, we're not making a statement on this yet. We're sitting on it, but we will probably respond to it at one point, but right now we're not ready, so we're going to stay silent on this for now. Well, the translator who took this statement and that word and translated it into English basically translated it as not worthy of comment or held in silent contempt. And so it was as if the Japanese were saying, we will take your unconditional uh, option and rip it up and throw it out. We have no interest in even commenting on it. And that got out into the public, and so all of the allies basically assumed that Japan was saying there is no situation in which we are going to surrender, and the next step that took place in World War II was Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so that was based supposedly on the misunderstanding of one word that was being communicated from the Japanese. Now, to be fair, there's some question as to how true that story is, uh, but Japanese historians stick by it. They say that that is true. And if those were the stakes when we're talking about World War II, I would argue our understanding of the words that we read in Scripture the stakes are even higher. And the importance of what we put behind these words when we read them and when we use them is more significant than the misunderstanding that took place in World War II. Because as horrific as that was, it was temporal. And our understanding of these words can have eternal ramifications. And so to me, digging deeply into the meaning of these words is basically theology. They go hand in hand. So the more you understand what a word is really intending to communicate, the more faithfully you're going to understand exactly what it is the Bible is trying to communicate to us. Okay, so first we're going to kind of take a moment to look at what I would call an unhelpful definition of faith. And we'll go through some of these. Um, these are all on inspirational backgrounds because apparently inspirational backgrounds make things more true, right? That's what I've, under that's what I've discovered by looking around on the Internet recently. And so this first one, uh, faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence, right? And it's kind of funny because if I didn't have the name down there, unfortunately it might be a little unclear as to whether or not this is coming from a believer or not, but it's not. It's coming from one of the most militant atheists that uh, has existed in recent history, Richard Dawkins who wrote the book The God Delusion and basically attacked Christianity consistently. And he likened faith to delusion. He said they go hand in hand. They're the same thing. That's a synonym, right? And so then we've got um, this from uh, J.M. Barry, who is the author of Peter Pan. I thought this one was kind of interesting. I don't know how legible that is. Uh, the reason birds can fly and we can't is simply because they have perfect faith for to have faith is to have wings. So, apparently, if our faith was perfect, we could defy the laws of physics and fly into the sky. I'm not sure if I believe that. This, again, is not a believer, but this is how non-believers are trying to define faith 
to us, which is hilarious, right? Yes, please, tell us what faith is. Um, The problem is, this isn't limited to unbelievers who are kind of suggesting that this is a reasonable understanding of what faith is. So now we're going to move into maybe some believers who have some different ideas about faith. And I have removed attribution for these uh, intentionally because my goal is not to call anyone out or to say this is wrong and we're right, um, but to say maybe there's some ways in which we can look at this in a little bit more healthy way. So moving on. Faith turns dreams into realities. Interesting, does it? Uh, so just looking at this at first, I was like, I don't, I don't know that that's really problematic in and of itself, but I went to the page that the very, very popular pastor who wrote this uh, was using this to make an illustration on, and it was pretty much straightforward. The one and only step necessary to see your vision come to fruition is strong enough faith. So if you have faith in something that you want to be true, that is sufficient for it to become true. That's an interesting idea that I don't know I would want to put too much stock in, and I'll kind of explain why as we continue to move forward. Here's another one. I've lived long enough to realize I don't need to know all the answers. Faith is enough. And again, like the inspirational background makes it so believable. There's, there's this idea that I've got this body of knowledge over here, and that's good, and that's helpful, and I need that because I can't make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich if I don't know how. But over here, where I'm making these deep, profound decisions about what my life is going to look like, oh, faith is enough over there. I don't, I don't need to worry about having all the answers. I can, I can just rely on faith, whatever faith is in this situation. So in this situation, we're literally drawing a line between faith and having answers and saying those are two separate things. It's like, hmm, okay, uh, that's starting to make me a little uncomfortable, I have to admit. All right, and this one, I like this one most. Faith is seeing light with your heart when all your eyes see is darkness. And again, if, if, these are, if, these, if you have these on your wall at home, please don't feel attacked <laughs> because there, there's a beauty in these ideas that is I, I want to trust the Lord with everything I've got even when it doesn't really seem like it makes sense. That's not a bad idea. I will give you that, and I will, I'm going to touch on that at the very end to say why that's actually a reasonable approach, but we're going to do some stuff in between. But if you look at this for just what it's saying, this is saying, this is everything my senses are telling me, but I'm going to step over here and believe this instead. That is a pretty problematic definition of faith as far as I'm concerned. I would say that's a very problematic definition of faith because in that context, when you say, this is everything my senses are telling me, but I am going to come over here and believe this instead, do you know what another word for that is? I like the word delusion. Um, Even more so, I'd say I like the word wishful thinking. And I think if I had to, if I had to kind of lump all of these together, where they're saying faith is at odds with evidence. Well, if that's the case, then I'm not making informed decisions where I put my faith. I am just deciding I wish this were true, which is kind of the definition of wishful thinking. So I'm kind of making a bold statement here by suggesting that uh, a better synonym for faith based on what these definitions are providing would be wishful thinking. And my concern is that if we bring faith as wishful thinking to Scripture when we read it, we're going to run into some pretty significant problems. So I would say there's two kind of ideas that that are wrapped up in this. Uh, I don't have any reason to believe this is true, but I'm going to do so anyway. There's that kind of faith, right? And then I know this isn't reality, but I'm going to choose to live in this fantasy land in some attempt to manifest it into reality. And again, if, if these ideas have resonated with you, I'm not attacking you as not having a good faith, but I do want to encourage you to maybe think of it in a slightly different way. So if we put it in these terms, then we kind of end up in this situation where we've got one small room, right? 
And on one side of the room, we've got faith. And on the other side of the room, we've got evidence. And they are in a constant battle with each other. And you could call this room your mind, your life, your heart, whatever. And you find that when you have a lot of faith, you don't have a lot of room for evidence. And when you have a lot of evidence, you don't need a lot of room for faith. And this feels like a completely reasonable understanding of the relationship between evidence and faith. And I would take it even a step further. I would say that a lot of people, especially people who are coming at this from a non-Christian perspective, would say evidence is the realm of the world, while faith is the realm of Christianity, right? So when I'm trying to figure out how to live my life and how to make that peanut butter sandwich, well, then I'm going to rely on, you know, instructions and people who know good things and all the stuff, historical experience, all that, all that stuff to, to make sure I'm doing that right. But when I'm over here in the Christianity world, oh, I don't need to worry about any of that stuff. It's so nice because it's all just blind faith. It's all just, well, I read these words and I say, oh, yeah, that's good. I'm going to do that. And one of the devastating implications of this is that when you have faith as a wishful thinking of Christianity in your life, it topples so quickly. When your life gets hard, when you find out that you have stage four cancer or that your uh, spouse has been unfaithful or that your finances are in ruins, when that happens, wishful thinking is going to have nothing to do with the decisions that you make next. Instead, you're going to turn to the world of evidence. You're going to turn to the place where things make logical sense, and you're going to say, okay, if I have cancer, what do I do first? Let me search online. Let me get ideas. Okay, that's what matters. And Dave, I believe, said this once. Uh, Prayer is not the only step, but it's the necessary first step. Something like that. He said it better. But if your faith is a wishful thinking faith that doesn't apply to the world, when these tragedies really happen, you're turning away from your wishful thinking because that's the luxury of the comfortable, right? And instead, you're turning to the world because that's where the real answers are. And so that's why I feel like this can be such a devastating approach to understanding what faith is. All right. If that's the case, then let's start trying our best to turn to a more biblical definition of what faith means by looking at the Greek for the word faith, first of all. Uh, The biblical definition for faith, the Greek word is actually pistis, which comes from the root pistuo. And if you were to translate the Greek word pistuo as kind of concisely as you could, it would be to convince by argument, which that's so interesting to me, right? That's wildly different than what we've talked about up to this point. Those inspirational posters don't have anything to do with argument or evidence or syllogisms. But apparently, according to the Bible, at least, this word faith is rooted in the idea of being convinced by argument. So if that's the case, then I think we've got the option to set up a totally different synonym for the word faith. Instead of thinking of faith as wishful thinking, now we can look at faith as trust. And I love that as a synonym for faith. And I think that it opens up a whole new understanding of what, how we approach life both in the world and in our Christianity. So if this is fair, then you know, this feels like it's right in line with Hebrews 11. Uh, a conclusion of something you can't know from solid evidence that you do know, right? So if that's the case, then I would say that we're attempting in our room where we've got evidence on one side, faith on the other side, we're attempting to at least bring evidence into both sides of that because we're not saying that over here on the Christian side there's only faith. We're saying, no, 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 there's there's evidence there too. And and we're going to look at John 10 again here in a little bit. But let's just talk about it. Before we do that, we probably need to bring faith into the realm of the world. Does that make sense? Do we have faith when it comes to how we go about our daily lives from a non-Christian perspective? Say a a person who is not a believer, do they have faith? And I think the answer is absolutely. I mean, they have faith every day, right? So just some examples of faith. You make a purchase with your credit card, right? 
you go into the store and let's say even better, a debit card. You go into a store, you've got your debit card. You pick the things off the shelf before you go up to the counter and say, hey, can you double check that I have money? (laughs) You know, you're putting a lot of faith into a lot of things that you have money, that your card's going to work, that they can process it, that they're connected to the bank, all sorts of faith. You don't know what's going to happen when you go up and make that purchase, but you have a pretty good understanding, right? How about when you leave your spouse alone at home? That requires faith. What are they going to do? Well, hopefully, you have a whole history of evidence that gives you some idea of exactly what they're going to do. And so that is a faith-based decision based on evidence, right? Uh, Waiting to turn on your car until you're ready to leave, right? You've scrambled. You've gotten ready for church. You jump out in the car, and you don't turn the key until you're ready to drive away. Why didn't you go out there 30 minutes ago just to confirm that? Well, and some of you may have, and I'm sorry for you. Uh, but why didn't you go out there 30 minutes ahead of time and just make sure that your battery was charged and that the, the current's going to flow and that the ignition's going to happen, all that kind of stuff? That's all faith. All of this is faith, right? And so what I would argue is that uh, we don't have this relationship of faith being on one side of your head and evidence being on the other side of your head. That's not really how things work. And to think of it that way is a, is a mistake. What's actually happening is you've got evidence, you've got things that you can know, and based on those things that you can know, you make a decision. You put your faith, which is predicting what's going to happen that you can't know about, on what you did know about and what you collected as evidence. That's, that's just how it works. That's how decision-making works. That's how it works over in the world And that's how it works in Christianity, ideally, right? So this is what we actually end up with. We actually end up with a situation where people who wouldn't consider consider themselves even remotely Christian are making faith-based decisions consistently on evidence. But over here in Christianity, can we say that we're doing the same thing? I mean, I I would argue that we do. So... Uh, these extraordinary claims that we've talked about from John 10, in order for the, when you make an extraordinary claim, you have to provide extraordinary evidence. If you don't, then your extraordinary claim reasonably should be completely ignored. And it was so encouraging to me as I was reading through John 10 to see that when Christ first said what he said about, I am the gate, and I am going to lay down my life, and then I'm going to pick it back up. There were people here who maybe didn't see the situation with the blind man. Who knows? But for whatever reason, they responded completely reasonably, right? Verse 19, therefore there was division among, again, among the Jews because of these things. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Yeah, that's reasonable. That's a reasonable response to what he is saying. But then the others said, yeah, but did you see what he did with that blind man, that that seems significant. (laughs) Maybe we should take that into account as well, right? And then just to make sure that, you know, we're not reading more into this than we should, that Christ is on board with us requiring significant evidence before we make these leaps of incredible belief, right? Verse 37, I love this. "If If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. That's reasonable. I give you permission to ignore my claims if I'm not doing these things that are making it clear that I am supernatural, right? But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Okay, so Christ is saying, I acknowledge I'm making some crazy statements, out of the ordinary, supernatural. That's why you should look at all this other stuff that's happened, again, 5 through 11, so that you can know that these claims that I'm making are based on good reasoning. Okay, so now we've got faith and evidence on the Christian side, encouraged by Christ himself, and we've got faith and evidence on the world side because they're starting their cars right when they need to leave. So we are all now kind of following the same paradigm, but those don't really, those don't really cross over too much, right? You know, I don't, I don't look at uh, whether or not I should start my car before or after to find out how I should interact with theology, right? Or do we? (laughs) Surprise, we do. So let's look at a little bit of evidence that the world has provided us about our faith. 
So uh, the first one that we have is Deuteronomy 23:12 through 13. Most of you are probably very familiar with this verse. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Right? Someone's life verse, I'm sure. Actually, that, this might be the reason that I'm not asked to preach but like once every year and a half. Um, but why is this relevant? Why is this important? So the Minoans in 2000 BC, they're like the first city, right? And uh, they realize that it's not great to live with your poop. It's just generally unpleasant. Humans are naturally adverse to such things. And so they were the first ones to start kind of trying to figure out a way to remove it from where they lived. But that wasn't an issue for nomads. For nomads, they would leave whatever mess they needed to and move on. So it didn't have much of an impact, right? Uh, Hippocrates in 350 B.C., uh, the father of medicine, he was the first one that thought, you know, it might be helpful if we boil this water. It seems like when this water is used without being boiled, people get sick. We don't know why. It doesn't make sense. But it just seems like it helps. It makes it sweet again, were his words. But it wasn't until 1870 that microbes were discovered and people started to understand, oh, there are things living in that that will make us sick. This isn't like an option. This isn't something that's kind of gross that we don't want to be exposed to. This is crucial for our health. In 1700 B.C., God is telling the Israelites that this is true. He's saying he's making it a law that they have to leave camp and they have to cover after they're done with their business. That doesn't make any sense. Why would that be something that's in the law that the Israelites have to follow? And it's because now we know that that was crucial to them surviving. That's crazy. That's crazy, right? The second one. I don't know if you guys have heard Dave talk about cognitive behavioral therapy at all. He might have mentioned it once or twice. I have a hard time remembering. But basically, um, psychology wasn't even invented until uh, 1879, and it was popularized in the U.S. in 1911 when Freud came to live in the U.S., and he, it exploded at that point. It was like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is the answer to everything. This is what we have not understood, that how people think affect how they act, right? That's crucial. And so in 1911, it blew up. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, 1960s, right? This is not that long ago. We came up with this idea of cognitive behavioral therapy because what happened was that all these ideas that Freud had um, and other main uh, psychologists of the time, they found that they weren't helping anybody. It wasn't having a positive effect. And so in the 60s and 70s, they finally came up with this new idea called cognitive therapy, right? And then they added the behavioral later. And cognitive uh, behavioral therapy basically uh, is identifying faulty or maladaptive patterns of thinking, emotional response or behavior, and substituting them with desirable patterns of thinking, emotional response or behavior. Right? Have you heard anything that that sounds like? You know, Philippians 4.8, so long before we understood the connection between how you think affecting how you live. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Let those be the places where you focus your thoughts. Oh, yeah. God invented cognitive behavioral therapy a long time ago, and we finally caught up in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> it's crazy to me. All right, last one. Um, we've got this idea of empathy that humans can express towards one another. That's weird. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that I should be able to feel something that you feel. That's a strange thing. And uh, even more so than that, they found out that uh, in 1960s, there was, a, or in 1960, exactly, I think, there was a study in which they took uh, 20, basketball, 20 basketball players in each group, so 60 altogether. 20 of them would practice their free throws, something like 10 minutes a day. The second group would not practice at all, but just imagine doing free throws for 10 minutes a day. And then the third group would do neither of the two. Okay. What they discovered, supposedly, 
was that the first group improved about 24%. That makes sense, right? You practice something, you're going to get better at it. The second group that only imagined improved 23%. What? That's insane. And we're discovering these things, you know, in the 1960s. In 1994, they took 35 studies like that where people had visualized and they confirmed, yeah, it's not quite that extreme in most cases, but it's significant. You can improve dramatically by thinking about what you want to be true and your body will develop that skill. What happens is your brain literally rewires itself to make certain actions more easy and in doing so makes you better at things, right? So then we, we look at Proverbs 13:20. Uh, <clears throat> walk with the wise and you will become wise. Walk with fools and you will suffer harm, right? When you watch people who are making wise decisions, your brain literally rewires itself to make it more likely that you are going to make wise decisions. When you watch people doing foolish things, your brain literally rewires itself to make it more likely that you're going to do foolish things. We're just discovering this. Mirror neurons weren't found until the 1980s that this idea that this all works. This is crazy. But if you've been reading your Bible, you're way ahead. You already know this, right? Because we've got Matthew 5:21 and 27 that says, if you interact with women in this way in your mind, it's as if you're doing it. Well, yeah, because it's actually rewiring your brain to make it more likely. That's crazy. If you hate your brother, it's kind of like you're harming him for real. Yeah, because it's actually making it more likely. All these things that we're discovering. And so now we've got this crossover of evidence from the world giving us a foundation for our faith in Christianity. And I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's next to nothing, right? But we find this quote. I love this quote from uh, Robert Jastrow. I assume his name is uh, in the book, God and the Astronomers. He is an astronomer. And he says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak and he pulls himself over the final rock and he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. Over and over again, right? The Big Bang Theory just as another example, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't that long ago. And it's weird that somehow <laughs> the Big Bang Theory has been spun as this antithesis to Christianity when before the Big Bang Theory, the answer to Christianity was like, no, the universe has always existed. Don't, don't be stupid. Don't, don't suggest that it had a beginning. That's so dumb. And then science comes along and says, well, uh, now that we have these telescopes, it does look like the universe had a beginning. But that proves the Bible's not true. I was like, wait, <laughs> I'm not getting that connection. But you've got the cosmological argument, got the uncaused causer, you've got this Goldilocks universe and life from inorganic matter, you know, all these things that, and we go back to verse 37 again. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, Though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And so immediately we're taking this to mean the works that we just saw in chapter 5 through chapter 10. But man, what about all these other works? If the universe was created through Christ, those are his works too. And so when Christ says, hey, take a look at my works and use that as the evidence on which to base your faith, that is a strong faith. That's a faith that will not be shaken, right? And so then, just kind of as a side note, the uh, Goldilocks universe problem where we've got this universe that's just perfect for life and it doesn't make any sense because mathematically it's impossible. Dawkins' answer to that is, oh yeah, well that's just because there's infinite universes and this just happens to be the one that was just right. And when he's asked, oh okay, well, what's the evidence for the the infinite universes, this multiverse theory? And he's like, well, we don't have any evidence yet, but we will. That's crazy to me because that is wishful thinking. So he's looking in on us and saying, oh, you guys, you're just wishful thinking. Um, Mr. Pot, <laughs> I'm afraid you might be calling the kettle black, right? 
when he's confronted with this idea, wait, wait, we never see organic matter come out of inorganic matter. That, that never happens. Where are you getting that from? And he says, oh, well, yeah, we haven't been able to reproduce it yet, but we will someday. Okay, but I'm sorry, sir. That sounds like wishful thinking. So it might be that he's so used to wishful thinking that he just assumes that that's what we're doing too. But we have to make sure that that's not the case, right? That's our, that's our call in all of this. Okay, finishing up. <clears throat> I would argue that based on everything that we've talked about so far, we don't even have to separate these things anymore. That how we approach our life in the world and how we approach our Christianity, which hopefully are not separate things when it comes down to it, is by looking at evidence and putting our faith in that evidence, right? That's what we as Christians should be doing when we're starting the car, when we're making a purchase, when we're making a peanut butter sandwich, and when we're reading the Bible, and when we're looking at the claims that are made in it. All of those things should be this exact same approach. Let's look at the evidence, and let's put our faith where the evidence suggests we should. That's what's going to hold you up when the hard times come for real. Okay, I want to take it one step further, and then we'll be done, right? So we've got this idea of faith as trust. I want to argue that we could tag on one more part that says faith as trust that leads to action. And the reason I'm willing to say that is because of the movie Aladdin. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you're probably familiar with this scene where... uh, the apple has been stolen. The princess took the apple, gave it to the kid, and the market guy is like, "Hey, are you gonna pay for that?" And she's like, "What pay for things? What are you talking about? That's weird." Because she's a princess; she's never paid for anything her whole life. So, uh, the guards from the castle come by. They're chasing them. They're going all over the place. And there's this point at which they kind of get cornered. Okay, this is gonna be weird because I can already feel it starting to happen. This is where I'm probably gonna start getting emotional, and you're gonna be like, uh, "Aren't you talking about Aladdin?" <laughs> But the problem is there's such a good tie-in with how the Lord interacts with us that I want to expose through this that if I start getting emotional (laughs) describing this, it's not because I'm that passionate about Aladdin, I promise. (laughs) Okay, but they're trapped, they're on this roof, and there doesn't seem to be any way out, and the the guards are coming. And Aladdin, who is a street rat, a thief, he lives on the streets, he knows how to handle this kind of situation, he's been doing it his whole life. He says, hey, uh, I know what to do in this situation. Do you trust me? And she's like, "Uh, well, I don't have any other option, really. And so reluctantly, you can see the reluctance in her eyes there. She takes his hand, and then I think he, like, flings her over on a big pole across the, the way. So maybe that was misplaced. But regardless, they escape, right? Here's the point. When he says, do you trust me, he wasn't looking for her to say yes or no. That wasn't sufficient. It wasn't the state of her mind that he cared about because that wasn't going to produce any results. What mattered was whether or not she took his... (laughs) What mattered was whether or not she took his hand. And she did. So it was action. It was necessary. The, The action was there. And the reason I'm comfortable saying that trust requires action is because the best definition, and again, we're talking about definitions because definitions matter, right? Trust, the best definition I've heard, is relying on the capability and intent of another. And this is exactly what Pastor Dave was talking about last week when he was saying, hey, if you're going to trust someone, if you're going to rely on somebody, you've got to make sure these two things are there. And if you don't take anything else away from this, I would encourage you to lock this in because this gives you the tool to know who you should trust and who you shouldn't, especially you young ladies, right? If the person you're thinking about trusting does not have a proven track record of capability in producing the results that you are hoping are produced in your life, or if the person that you're looking at trusting does not have the intent of pursuing your best interests, a track record of that, you don't trust them, right? You shouldn't trust them. But if they do, trust them, rely on them. But it means taking action, right? The relying is a verb. It's not a way of thinking. It's something that you do. So if trust is an action, then if you remember from uh, high school math, the transitive property, that's for you, the transitive property, if 
faith is trust and trust is action, what does that mean faith is? Yes, exactly. You can whisper louder. Yes. That means faith is action as well. That's the transitive property. We can take away that middle one. So, um, you know, is, is faith action? Is that, faith, is that fair to say? I mean, we see this in Scripture all over the place. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Those are the two things necessary to be saved. That is something that I'm believing and something that I'm doing. And James, even he makes this even easier for us, right? He says, I'll, I'll finish that for you if you want. End of chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. Yeah, faith is action. I'm going to make it as clear as I possibly can right here. So I think based on all that, we can create our own inspirational poster. I'm so excited about this, right? So, of course, you have to start with the mountains. This is what I would say is an incredibly helpful approach to understanding the word faith. When you're reading through scripture, go read through John 10 with this understanding of faith and see if it brings things out to you a little bit more. Faith is trust based on evidence that leads to action. That's the best I can do with helping you understand what my best understanding of faith is. And I think this is scriptural. I think this is beautiful. I think that cutting away any other definition of faith that may have more to do with wishful thinking is going to lead you to a more solid basis on which to live your life than if you hold on to wishful thinking that really can only be done in times of comfort anyway. Super last thought, right? I told you I was going to come back to those people who have those sayings on their wall and why, you know what, maybe that's not such a bad idea, to be honest. So you've got uh, Aladdin reaching out to Jasmine, hey, do you trust me? But that's not the last time we see this scene, right? Because a little bit later on, we see it again when he's pretending to be the prince. And he says, hey, do you trust me? Because they're going to go on an adventure, right? And you can see, I love that they even captured the frames like this. You can see the difference here. The first time, it's like, uh, I think so. I don't have any other choice. The second time, she's like, oh, it's you. I get it. And so in parenting, frequently the answer has to be because I said so, right? I don't have enough time to explain my rationale for why this is a good decision. Just trust me, because I said so. Now, that only works if we have established this framework of reliability and intent so that they can trust us, right? Let's assume that's true. God has the right to say the exact same thing to us because he has proven his capability and he has proven his intent. And so if you're going to wait until the 1970s to stop hanging out with people who are unwise because they discovered mirror neurons, you're going to have a bad time. So we have the beautiful opportunity to listen to God say, because I said so. And the I in that sentence makes all the difference. And so, if you have those posters on your wall because you have this rich history of seeing the trust that God deserves because of how he has expressed himself to you and the lives of those around you, by all means, read what's in Scripture and say, I believe that. I don't need any more evidence. Why? Because God said, because I said so, and I trust him because of all this stuff that I've seen. Maybe not... I don't necessarily, I can't create a cogent argument for this right here, but man, you take all this other stuff and I couldn't care less <laughs> because the I in that sentence, because I said so is the Lord. So I could imagine you being in one of four places today <clears throat> and I appreciate the extra time here. I'm sorry. Either you haven't really given Christianity an evidence-based hearing you haven't really, you've dis, discounted it on this kind of weird caricature 
you've taken the Dawkins approach of saying, oh, yeah, well, that's just faith. That, that's irrelevant. I live in the world of reality and of evidence and whatnot. Well, we've destroyed that myth. You can't make that excuse anymore. So now it's on you to look at Christianity based on the evidence and say, okay, does that make more sense than life coming from nothing? This universe existing in an orderly and reasonable way for us to exist at all. All these things that we have discovered in science that point to these ideas in scripture that were there thousands of years ago. You may be living in the luxury of being able to separate faith and evidence because you haven't had that hard time anytime recently. But that's going to get destroyed if you don't make the decision that this faith has got to be based on something more than just wishful thinking. You may have actually gotten to the point where you found yourself at the end of the world's answers, right? All the evidence that the world would offer, well, that's not gotten you very far, and you need something different. And lastly, you might be Jasmine seeing the Lord reach down and say, do you trust me? And no matter what, the Lord is looking down to you with his hand outstretched and saying, do you trust me? And all you have to do is reach up and take <laughs> And that's it. All right, stand with me, and uh, I will do a dismissals with prayer. <clears throat> Lord, thank you so much that you have given us something reasonable on which to base our faith, that you're even calling us to it, that you're calling us out in, in John 10 saying, no, 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 don't just take my word for it. That's foolishness. No, look at what is true. Look at what I have done. Lord, for the people in here who are struggling to take that step, who have kind of put it on the back burner, I pray that you would encourage us all to look at our faith as something that needs to be based on something solid, Lord. And where it is not shored up, help us to do so before it matters. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for all of these people, and I pray that you would bless every single one of them this week. And with that, Lord, we say amen.